Well, welcome to our brand new series called, Where Are You Headed? It's a series that will be invited to look at the direction that our lives are headed. Because Jesus wants us to make sure that the place that we think we're going to get to is actually the place we end up at. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus actually warns people early in his ministry about making sure they end up where they want to be. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. It's interesting because when we think about what Jesus is talking about, he uses a couple of metaphors. One about gates and one about roads. The gate, of course, tells us that there's a moment in time about a decision that we need to make in order to decide where we end up. But there's also a lifetime that we need to apply that decision. That's um, true for almost every area of life. If you decide today, um, I want to be in shape like Pastor Brian's in shape. I want to be buff like he is. I want to have endurance like he does. Or maybe you think, actually, I want to do it correctly. All right. But if you decide to do that, that's the decision. That's the gate. You say, you know what? I'm going to get physically fit. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to put on some muscle. I'm going to uh, have more stamina and more energy. I'm going to eat right. That's the gate. Then the road you must walk is actually doing activities that back up that decision. That's what we're talking about over the next couple of weeks and probably beyond. You know, a lot of you are getting ready to take some, some summer vacations, and maybe you won't be going as far with the price of fuel the way it is, the price of food the way it is, the price of, well, everything the way that it is. You might decide, you know what I want to do? I want to visit something new. I want to go to a place that I don't know about. So how do you get there? Most of you, you'll pull out your phone, and you'll say, I want to get to here, and your phone will say, ah, this is where you are. Let me help you get there. But sometimes the phone signal dies. Sometimes you're traveling in some rural places. That's where you want to be, and the signal's not as strong. Maybe your phone's a few generations behind, or maybe you're in another country where your cell phone doesn't really work at all. What do you do then? Well, you'll have a map. You'll have a map that says, here's where we are, and here's the roads that we need to follow, here's the highways, here's the throughways, here's what we need to do, here's how we get there, right? 
But sometimes the map fails us. What we do then is that we'll look for landmarks. As I said at the top of the service, I grew up in a small town of uh, 800 people. And one of the interesting things about that is that we get visitors all the time to our town, especially summer vacation, people would come and visit. And they'd want to know where something was. We wouldn't tell them, we need you to go down to Main Street and turn left. We wouldn't tell them street names. You know what we'd tell them? Landmarks. Well, you want to go down to Bob's Feed Store. And when you hit Bob's Feed Store, you hang a right. And you're going to look for the house that has the ugly pink shutters on it. That's mine. I just haven't painted them yet. And then what you do then after that is I want you to go down until you see the big oak tree. It's got two red ribbons tied around two of the branches. You're going to hang a left there. And two roads down from that, you'll arrive at your destination. You ever had anyone describe how to get to somewhere like that? Oh, you know where the Wegmans is? Yeah, just turn right after that, go down three houses, and you're there. You know where Home Depot is? If you've hit that, you've gone too far, come back. You know, they'll tell you where the landmarks are. That's the best way to know that you've entered the right gate and that you're on the right road. That you don't just have an overview of where you are and where you want to end up, but as you're traveling that journey, the landmarks show that you are headed in the right direction. And Jesus is infinitely interested in making sure we know both of those things. As a matter of fact, the Bible is full of those things. Where we're not just hearing about, here's how to get to heaven. Here's what you do. Here's the gate. But also, this is what it's like to travel on the road. Here are some landmarks that should be in your life, that should be in my life. The Bible's like a good map that way. The Bible's like a good tour guide, making sure that we have the destination and the landmarks showing that we're headed in the right direction. So what are some of the evidences that you and I need to be aware of? Jesus would talk about um, sheep and goats. We don't have sheep and goats, but the idea was that you would have sheep who would go to heaven and goats who wouldn't. And Jesus consistently would say things like, there are goats who think they're sheep. Their landmarks don't match up to where they are in life. So how do you know that you're on the right road? Is it, well, I go to church. I do that regularly. Maybe that's a good thing. I read my Bible. It's a good thing too. Oh, I pray, especially when life gets hard. Then I, then I really pray. Oh, good. All good things. But I wonder, what if there's things that we're missing? What are the landmarks that Jesus would say we needed to watch out for? Well, if you have a Bible with you, this is one of the major ones that when I think of 
the church in general in our culture today. The Christian church in general. And our specific church. I think this is something that uh, we know is true, but maybe we don't always think that it's that much of a priority. And the good thing about Jesus is, is that he's like a good doctor. He's the great physician. And sometimes he'll tell us the hard news that, well, it's a little hard to hear, right? But thankfully he tells us so that we can make sure we're headed in the right direction. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to just one of those instances where Jesus shares one of the landmarks beginning in Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the verses up on the screen, and we're going to share a number of stories that I just find fascinating that help, Je- help us know what Jesus meant about the landmarks that we need to see in our lives to make sure that where we're headed is where we want to end up. Take a look at uh, Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what uh, was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be, a house, will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. The king rides into Jerusalem in what we now celebrate as the triumphal entry. 
This was his coming, his indication that he was the rightful king, that he was the right Messiah, uh, fulfilling this prophecy from long ago. And the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. And what does he do? Throws out who? Throws out the money changers. What's more interesting to me is not that just he threw out the money changers, but where he threw them out from. Because um, they were all in the temple courts. Temple courts was the only place where non-Jews could go and try to be right with the Lord. It was the only place they could enter in the temple. Jews could only go, could go in farther, but you had to be a Jewish person or someone who had converted to Judaism, then you could enter. So in this temple court, as people who were far from God, coming from pagan societies, pagan cultures, would come in and say, we want to be right with the Lord, what were they told? Well, first, before you get right with the Lord, you have to do all of these things and all of these steps. And that infuriates Jesus. Because he says, you know that Scripture says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And if you look up the, the quote that he's making, the Old Testament verse that he's quoting, it's actually, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And the very people who were the ones to be a blessing to all the nations had become the gatekeepers to say, you're okay to be right with God and you're not because you have the right kind of money or you have the right kind of offering and you don't. They made it incredibly difficult for those who weren't part of their family, weren't part of their nation, weren't part of their tribe to connect and be right with the Lord. So while Jesus was flipping over the tables and kicking out the money changers and the lenders, he wasn't making a statement about money. He was simply returning the temple back to its intended purpose, a way for people to be right with God. Any person could come and be right with the Lord. And he was changing the things that were preventing the temple from achieving God's purpose. And that made some people upset which prompted Jesus to share some hard truth with them. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How, 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 how did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. And Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. 
if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I'll just, just pause there for a second. What? Have you ever prayed for something and you've not received it? Have you told any mountains to go into the sea lately? Maybe Matthew's just a poor gospel writer. Maybe he's got this, like, he just, you know what? I forgot all about the story about prayer. We want to encourage people to pray, so let me take this little snippet of the whole story. Uh, I'll just put it in, like, chapter 21. Yeah, that'll be perfect. Then he stuck it like we'd stick a sticky note on a book. You know, that here's a note, like, we got to buy these things. We got to go to the grocery store and get this. has nothing to do with the story. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's just a poor writer. Probably not. Probably need to continue a little bit. Let's keep reading. So Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, uh, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Well, they discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we say from, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, we're, we're afraid of the, the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And then Jesus goes after the root of the problem, like the great physician that he is. He says this. What do you think? Uh, There was a man who had uh, two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father said to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they, they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. 
And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, well, what will he do to the tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to, another, to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Wow. Let's recap. Let's recap. Pharisees come to Jesus and say, by whose authority are you doing this? And he did so by contrasting what he did and the results versus what they did and the results. He told them about John the Baptist who said, look at the changed lives of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Where are the changed lives that you're producing? In other words, he came from God. That's where he got his authority from because people were changing their lives for God. And the Pharisees were doing the opposite. They were keeping people from God. And God doesn't take very kindly to gatekeeping. He tells them, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to remove the kingdom of God from you. You're going to lose the responsibility of ministry. You're going to lose the opportunity to make an impact for God and it will be given to others. Can you not even see in the scriptures that you are the builders? And the ones that you said, ah, God would never use that stone. That, uh, we'd never use that stone. God said, nope, I'm making that the cornerstone of everything. And the proof is there from the changed lives of people who were far from God who are now coming near to God. And all that means for us, all that means is everything. That being faithful to God means being fruitful for God. Being faithful to God means being fruitful for God. But that's a challenging word, isn't it? Because when we hear fruit, we think of what we talked about last week at the conclusion of our Hope in the Dark series about the, the fruit of the Spirit and the internal character that changes us. 
That is not the fruit that Jesus is talking about. This is one of the landmarks that we must have on the narrow road. And it is, what are we producing around us? Repentance, the kind the Pharisees would not do, is more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's more than just offering a sacrifice. It's more than just positional righteousness. That's the gate. They must now walk in righteousness and produce righteousness with those around them. It's bringing my life into God's purposes, not just saying I'm sorry and then doing nothing after that. Being faithful means being fruitful. And Jesus Jesus doesn't hold this back from his people. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He doesn't want them to be lost. He doesn't want them to be unaware. He tells them how significant this kind of fruit is absolutely necessary to the lives of those who say they follow him. He tells one more story at the beginning of Matthew 22. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's uh, it's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The good, the bad, as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Let me just pause here for just a second. That's a good story, isn't it? Imagine people defying the king's son's invitation. Not only that, thinking, I got better things to do. Ah, they got what they deserved. We love that kind of justice. And then the doors are wide open to anyone. Anyone gets to come to the king, not just the important people, not just the people who have connections and dealings and relationships and are high up in society. Every person, even the people who, oh, maybe I didn't know that they'd get invited, but they got invited. Don't, doesn't the king know who they are? He certainly does. He's the king. And they still get to come and celebrate. Oh, that's a good story. We know as Christians what that means. We know that that's the gospel. We know that anyone can come, that anyone can be a part of the banquet at the end of time, but darn it all, Jesus, 
you keep the story going. And you talk to me personally. He talks to us personally. And he says this. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. My wife and I were uh, first married. We got a number of kitchen household gifts um, that people gave to us. Um, I think we got more bath towels and hand towels than what is really necessary for a neighborhood, let alone a home. But we also got some kitchen supplies. And one of the things we got was a really nice non-stick frying pan. No, this isn't a PUBG reference. This is just simply, you know, it's our frying pan. Went home and grabbed it out of our dishwasher from this morning. Um, I like nonstick pans. I like cast iron too. I like the, the way that it kind of helps the juices to all cook together. But I love cast iron, or I love um, Teflon. I love nonstick pans. You know why? Super easy to clean. Amen. Like that's, that's a sermon right there. Easy to clean. I love this. You put a little water in here and a little bit of soap, and you can just kind of move your hand over the water, right? And the stuff just starts to come off. It just starts to lift and go away. It's, it's fantastic. You, you put a little uh, dusting of something down, maybe some butter or some, some kind of uh, oil spray, and stuff will just slide right off of this when you're ready to serve it. It's amazing, and it's so easy to clean. You can wipe it down with a cloth and even the toughest stains, the toughest, the, the toughest stuck-on food just disappears. It's, it's wonderful. Well, due to some mishaps in our home with forks and uninterested husbands, the uh, frying pan um, lost its Teflon. So then we had a frying pan that was a stick frying pan. It wasn't a non-stick frying pan. It was now a stick frying pan. It was just anything. You could put butter in it, and the butter would just stick to it. You could put water in it, and the water would stick to it. I'm being a little facetious, but you get the idea. It would just stick. Everything would stick. And you know what we ended up doing? We threw it away, and we got a new one. We got rid of it because it had failed to serve its purpose anymore. We know the story of the sheep and goats. But sometimes goats think they're sheep and they show up at the wedding without wedding clothes. They're not ready to celebrate 
and they don't get to stay. They are kicked out. And Jesus, with, I'm confident, with incredible love in his voice and frustration at the same time, says, don't get kicked out of the wedding. Don't lose the opportunity. Don't think you're ready when you aren't. This is not about the decision. This is not about that once in a moment when you said at the gate, I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. It is, have I surrendered? Have I walked the narrow road for a lifetime? Don't get kicked out of the wedding. Don't assume that just because you prayed a salvation prayer once, but you've never spent any time aligning your life with the purpose of God, which is to bring people close to Him. Don't assume that when your plans and God's plans, your purpose and God's purpose, the way you live and the way God wants you to live, Because if you leave God out, you get left out. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us that. To warn us about that. That it's not just the gate. It's not just entering. It's walking the narrow road. It's not just a moment in time. It's for a lifetime. Now, the interesting thing is, Jesus would say that the greatest commandment is to love Him with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And to, the second is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus would directly apply that for us, just so that we wouldn't be confused and mixed up about how we ought to live with life. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I'm leaving. Go make disciples. As you're going through your life, make disciples. In other words, the litmus test for life is not about how much you attend, how much you know, but how you make disciples. And will we, are we, ready, willing, and able to give up anything that would hinder that purpose that he has given to every one of his followers. That's the fruit. The fruit is the influence that we have on those around us. Are we making disciples? And are we making the right kind of disciples? Because some Christians make really good disciples of themselves. And other Christians make disciples of Christ. Jesus would say that the, the cornerstone, if anyone places themselves on that cornerstone, they'll be broken to pieces. Anyone who serves knows that serving Christ in this way will come in direct conflict with what they want for themselves, what they want 
comfort for their family, security, and well-being. They know that it will come at an incredible cost. Matter of fact, Jesus says that one of the things that uh, will come to every Christian is persecution. That's what he says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Saying that if you are these things, if you are a true follower of me, then you will be persecuted and blessed because that's a sign that you are living for the right reasons. You are living for the right person. Being faithful means being fruitful. That's the warning. So let me ask two questions, just to try to help us to apply this. I think there's a couple of things that we can do in our lives to truly engage with whether we're being a Pharisee or a follower. I think the first question that relates to the kind of influence and fruit that I'm producing by making disciples is this. Who is finding God through me in my life today? Who is finding God through me? Not knowing about God, not knowing that I'm a Christian, but who is finding God through me? Who is seeing how I am living and thinking, I want that, show me, teach me. How are you modeling that? And I think there's a few ways that you can do that, but I think one of the easiest ways is to think of just family. How are you modeling that with family? How are you modeling that you love God sacrificially and supremely, and you've taken the command to make disciples seriously? Does your family see that? How do they see that? How does your spouse see that? Are they finding God? through you and the way you live, through the way you act, through what you watch, through the way you spend your income. What about your kids? Or if you're young enough, your parents. If you're not married, what about your friends? Who is finding God through me in my workplace? I know work says you can't talk about God at work. But you can get to know people at work and then you can talk to God after work if you want. But how are you, how are people at your workplace finding God through you? How are people finding God through you at your church? Church makes it incredibly simple as a way for people to engage in growing in a caring community towards maturity in Christ. You can give to your local church. You can give. And I don't think Jesus is talking about putting in a few leftovers. You can give first and foremost to your Heavenly Father. And you can serve. You've got gifts and talents and abilities. You've got spiritual gifts, things that fire you up and grow your faith when you activate them and leverage them. You can use those to serve other people. So are you a consumer or are you a contributor? Do you get with other people to learn, to influence, to 
encourage, to hold accountable, to be held accountable towards a singular purpose of loving God supremely and loving your neighbor sacrificially and sharing the gospel and making disciples. You don't have to do that alone. You can do that with others. You can group up together. Do you invite? One of the easiest things you can do is say, I'm going to this great church on Sunday. Come with me. I'll buy you lunch afterwards. How can you make your life a runway, not a roadblock? So that people can find God, not in spite of you, but through you. And how can you do that intentionally? And the second question is from that. Now that you can kind of see where that might be or where that might not be, what step do I need to take to clear out my life? What do I need to surrender? What do I need to lay down? What fear is holding me back from saying all for Jesus? And even if I lose my life, which, by the way, he says, that if anybody wants to find their life, they will what? Lose it. What do I need to sacrifice in order to serve? Faithful means being fruitful. Disciples make disciples. And the best part is, you don't need a degree, you don't need to become uh, a professional, paid take a position in a church or go on the mission field in that capacity. You can do that right where you are because where you are is your mission field. You can do it right where you are. And you're not alone in this. Do you remember what Jesus said? Just that weird story that Matthew, the editor, kind of stuck in like the post-it note in the middle of the great message that he wanted to share with us. By the way, this is God's purpose. And God's purpose has God's power behind it. And you can activate what God wants to see happen simply through asking for it to be done. Things like, you know that person's hard heart. Wouldn't it be great if it was just softer a little bit to the truth of the gospel? Wouldn't it be amazing if a door was open? Wouldn't it be amazing if all of a sudden the things that we need for ministry in order to really see Gates and Rochester and Monroe County and New York State and the United States and the world change? Wouldn't you love to see that happen? You can ask for that and you can be a part of it. That's amazing. That's the power that God says is available to you when you align your life's purpose to his when you decide, I am going to be about making disciples, that is my purpose in life. God says, excellent, let's get down to business and let's do it together. That's what Jesus meant when he said, anything you pray for will be given to you because God would love nothing more than to activate Christians in our world today who are sold out first and foremost to the primacy of the mission of making disciples. So the question is, will we get down to business? Where are you headed? Where are you headed? Being faithful means being fruitful as God enables us. Let's make our purpose 
one that he would be proud of. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for this hard word to hear. Because ignorance is not bliss. We need to know. We need to know that we are not only headed in the right direction, uh, that we made the decision, but that we are headed to where we want to be. And this is one of those landmarks that you give the people who wanted to crucify you. They may not have had the right response. Would you help us to have the right response? By making your purpose the command that you gave us to be the fruit of our lives, would you find us faithful by producing the fruit of other disciples in our midst? And even in ways that we cannot see, would you enable us to prioritize that to make that our supreme mission in life so that we will be ready when it's time for the wedding. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.